for a fleeting second, you may have heard that there was a financial collapse and a subsequent uprising in the small island nation of Sri Lanka. But do you know what really happened? So, join me, Desh, a storyteller and a member of the Sri Lankan diaspora, in my quest to find answers to the question, what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka's crisis, as we see it today, is enormously complex. In our last episode, we looked at how the Rajapakshas returned to Sri Lanka's political arena. In the grand scheme of things, this was hailed as something promising for most Sri Lankans. The level of support Gotabe Rajapaksha received was immense. Most popular musicians of the country passionately backed Gotabe Rajapaksha. But what followed after was a dismal picture. Soon, Sri Lanka faced a catastrophe, far worse than anything it was prepared for. Sri Lanka, like most of the world, was greatly impacted by the global pandemic. Its first case arrived on the 27th of January, 2020. What followed was an outcry, a quick recovery, and then a celebration. The former health minister was seen affectionately embracing a woman, Sri Lanka's first COVID patient from China. In March 2020, however, things took a turn with the island's cases spiking. Sri Lanka's police and military imposed curfews all across the island in an attempt to control the virus. In a desperate case to turn things around, Sri Lanka's government forced mandatory cremations on every death that was of unnatural causes. By February 2021, after claims of human rights violations and international outcry, the government finally allowed its minorities to bury their dead. By August 2021, the government refused to lay another lockdown despite reaching a thousand deaths in eight days. The central bank artificially raised its interest rates in an attempt to curb the economic loss, a fact later cited as a contributing factor to Sri Lanka's economic crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic was one of the first triggers to what we witnessed at the Aragalia a year later. The word Aragalia is an ancient word in Sinhala. I asked Sandun Turugala, a member of the Law and Society group, what led to the crisis? How did the Aragalia come into place? And how would one define the word Aragalia? Actually, there's no kind of like no exact word for Aragalia. I think struggle is, is okay, but, but normally we use Aragalia when we use English also because Aragalia is a bit more than struggle. So it's, it is a bit more than that. As you know, like so after COVID and everything, so like by the, like, like the first, like let's say towards the end of last year and at the beginning of this year, we, we as a country have started to see the the kind of like this massive economic crisis that we are going to face. You know? So I think the sad part of it, we all knew that's coming. I think government, state and everyone knew that this is coming and a lot of international financial institutions and everyone has been warning about us about the unsustainability of our foreign debts and our like flows in our economic management policies and everything. But the government, especially the Rajapaksha, like the Gotabe Rajapaksha government, it was kind of like, in a way, arrogant in a way, and so stubborn that were like always refusing what the kind of like warning signals that's been given, and they had like their own path, and they think we can manage it. And by early this year, we started seeing 
the negative impacts like uh, the the queues has started and first i think we ran away with uh, milk i think milk powder was the first that started shortages and then generally ga- like cooking gas and petroleum and everything so nothing has happened in, in like for the first couple of months like even january february there wasn't much and then we saw like smaller like initiatives coming up like for example one of the first things came up in kohuwala like in nugegoda junction few young people started a candle vigil like i think first day it was like i think four five young people and the next day there were few others and so they have continued it for weeks and then we have so i think i think the initial mobilization then started through social media and then there was i don't know where it came from like suddenly there was a announcement for everyone to come to colombo on uh, 3rd of april if i am not wrong 3rd of april there was kind of a general announcement so people will start saying so oh, we had enough of this small smaller struggle so we should have like a big one everyone should come to colombo on 3rd of april and then then government started get worried and then they they declare curfew on 3rd of april and then they declared emergency regulation so that kind of a increased the anger among the people then after they they removed the uh, curfew on 4th of april and then we have seen massive gatherings of people in various cities i think people were ready to take that risk and on 9th of april they all came to golf face so it was like around i think the uh, government says it's 50000 but like i was there and i like my calculations are about 100 to 200000 people throughout the day in my life that was like the like the most beautiful thing has happened in this country like people from various walks of the country from rich to the poor children women men uh, like clergy monks and everyone came to golface and everyone had a message social media played an important role in culmination of the article much of its mobilization happened online through facebook instagram whatsapp and other groups online I had the opportunity to talk to Anuruddha Bandara, an important face in the Aragalaya movement. Bandara managed the Gota Go Home social media pages. These pages were incredibly popular and followed by hundreds of thousands of people. Anuruddha was arrested and later disappeared for a brief period, sending alarms ringing through Sri Lanka's activist circles. I talked to Anuruddha to understand the work behind mobilizing and being an activist. I asked him about hashtag #gotagohome pages. In March 2022, protest in Mirihana erupted outside the president's house, demanding his resignation. The protest only spread further when Sri Lanka's military and police got involved. Vehicles were set on fire with Colombo's main highways blocked and an island-wide curfew imposed. Several protesters and journalists were assaulted on live television. These incidents were later described as catalysts for the larger movement. On the 9th of April, large demonstrations gathered in the Golface Green, a popular beach location in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Tens of thousands of people attend the protest, making it a sight never seen before in Sri Lanka. The protesters' rallying cry Gota go home was successfully pacified with the Rajapaksha's resignation. However, if you peel back carefully, those who are responsible for the crisis are now back in power with no real accountability. Since the Aragalaya, Sri Lanka has a new government. So, I asked Ambika Satkunanathan, the former human rights commissioner of Sri Lanka, and Eranga Ginige the former advisor to president gotabe rajapaksha to ask what changes 
they see lie ahead. When people say it's a new government, I would say it's not a new government. It is the same government because many of the people are still in power. And of course, the Rajapaksas uh, are still behind the scenes, I suppose. They are the puppet masters to a large degree. Ranil Vikramasinghe, who is the current president, was elected by the Sri Lanka for the Jana Peramuna, which is the party of the Rajapaksas. The current prime minister is once again part of a, a close ally, in, in part of the uh, SLPP. Uh, therefore, it is definitely the new government. I mean, not a new government, it's the same government. And I think the, the mistake, or maybe it is a lack of awareness, we can say, of the protesters that they focused on an individual. The president, uh, Desh, uh, had only one uh, objective throughout this. It, it is to prevent another 88, 89. You know, he and I have had lengthy conversations about, about it. He uh, often recalls 88, 89 when he was positioned uh, as, a, as, a, as an officer in the army during that time, and he was based in Matale. And he tells me uh, how it all started. You know, this is how it all started. There are protests from here and there, and they started attacking the police, and then the police started, starts to retaliate, and then it escalates, and then the, the military is brought in, and then, uh, you know, some military personnel are killed, and then, you know, that starts a chain reaction. It goes back and forth, back and forth, until he says in his own words, nobody knows who's killing who. So Mr. Gotabi Rajapaksa's one thing was to prevent something like that from happening because he, he promised safety, he promised security uh, to uh, his people so that I'm not going to let that happen, which is why he was sort of being compassionate uh, towards the the youth in I mean, he himself gave a specific location for the protests. It was a strategic decision that was taken early on because we knew that there, you know, something like this was going to happen. Instead of this happening uh, all over the country, which will be extremely difficult to manage, sort of having it at one place would be a lot more manageable. So he was being compassionate for that. But then the infamous May 9th incident happens where uh, a group of Mahindra Rajapaksa loyalists comes to uh, Arali Ghamandire, uh, the prime minister's uh, residence, and then starts marching towards uh, the president's house. Right Now, this is something you might not know. I mean, that group's intention was to go and sort of blame and shout at the president, Gotabe Rajapaksa, for asking uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa to step down because in their opinion and in their mind, they thought that it was the president who is asking Mahindra Rajapaksa to step down. But the story is not, not, that, not, not that simple. It was a collective decision that was taken by the Rajapaksas even before the Mirihan incident where the protesters first came and attacked uh, uh, Gotabe Rajapaksa's uh, private residence. Right. Even before that, uh, all the Rajapaksas collectively made a decision to step down from their respective portfolios, and they even uh, even submitted their resignation letters. Then, uh, while others did, uh, some of the senior party officials came and requested Mr. Mahindra Rajapaksa uh, not to step down to remain as the prime minister. That they will step down and let uh, the opposition uh, to come and form a government. 
Of course, the individual bears much of the responsibility, but it is also the system. It is also the culture. It is also the family. So they did not focus on that. So technically, we could say what they demanded, they received, but it really did not solve any of our problems or much of our problems. And they were the protesters were not aware of it. What is next? It seems clearly no one wants to go for elections. As I say that we have not moved even an inch from 1983. Uh, we have not learned any lessons from the darkest times that we have passed. There's absolutely no tolerance there's absolutely no rationality. There's absolutely no understanding, mutual respect, equality uh, in diversity. All those values that we we sort of try to espouse and we try to sort of live by, we showed the world that we just don't have that. What we have seen is also oppression. We have seen a crackdown on protests. We have seen the Prevention of Terrorism Act being used against two people who are the lead of the protest, that is Vasanta Mudalige, the, the president of the Sri Lanka, the Inter-University Students Federation, and Siridam Mahiri, uh, Himi, who was also at the forefront of the protest. So we can see that the crackdown on dissent is definitely happening. So where human rights are concerned, Clearly, uh, there isn't a lot of improvement. What we are seeing economically, of course, we have seen, you know, food inflation nearly, I think it's at last I checked, was like 90%. During Aragalaya, people demanded, they called it system, system change. They wanted system change. But I don't think people really understand what system change is. They seem to think, and this is historical too, that changing people enacting new laws or establishing new institutions brings about change. It does not. Having been part of a state institution for five years and trying to reform it and largely failing, I can speak from personal experience that it does not. Because there is also the culture, the political culture, the social culture, the institutional culture, while you have these laws, there are also informal practices and processes that have become so ingrained and in sometimes take precedence over the formal, the official, the legal. So you need to acknowledge all that and do the hard work in raising the awareness and changing conversations, changing mindsets, mobilizing people. But many do not want to do that because that is long term. It's resource, time, energy intensive. It is difficult. You will be faced with hostility. It is far easier to enact a law or to set up an institution and say, OK, we've got a women's commission now. Women's rights protected. Tick the box. Uh, really not going to help. Having another commission is really not going to help women's rights because you know what? Patriarchy is ingrained and setting up a separate institution is not going to help tackle because the processes and systems themselves tend to be patriarchal and sexist in the state structure. So therefore, that is just one example. Therefore, I think when we say system change, it is important to undertake an analysis that takes all these you know, socio-political, economic, psychological aspects into account and not look at it as a technical, positivist, legal way of solving the problem because really there's only so much you can do with that. But Rai Kali Baltasar, a new up-and-coming face in Sri Lankan politics, and Sarla Emanuel, the researcher from Batiklo we spoke in an earlier episode, are optimistic and believe true power 
is still vested in the people. So I think the premise that the Aragalaya got what it set out to, what, what it asked for, that, that very premise is kind of incorrect. I know there was a slogan saying go to go home, but the, but that was an indication in some sense, or at least it was symbolic of, I mean, yes, it was go to go home, Mahinda go home, but that was symbolic of a structure and not just a person. So Ranil Rajapaksha is only an extension of the Rajapaksha family. So in no way has the Aragalaya really ended. And this is something that we say quite often. I said just today also, the Aragalaya, the struggle hasn't changed. If we still can't manage to feed our children, if we're still struggling for absolute basics, if we still have no access to education the way in which our children should have access, right? This is a struggle. If the government continues to prioritize defense, to prioritize infrastructure over healthcare, over education, over transport, over these very basic things that regular citizens need to live on a day-to-day basis, the struggle hasn't ended. I think the Aragalaya in general across the island, the Aragalaya was this amazing awakening of people's consciousness. Uh, It was an awakening of the youth of this country. Uh, Also, a lot of women there, they started getting involved in politics in a way in which we hadn't seen before. And I think it changed the paradigm. There was a shift in how people understood politics, that politicians weren't the only ones who were able to talk about politics, that our lives are inherently political. And I think this is the awakening. This is the consciousness that our lives are political that feeding our children is political, that our child's school, Montessori or nursery or uh, primary school or university education is political. Whatever food we have on our plate is political. And I think this understanding that these things are so political is what's changed. I think some some forms have worked in some places or have failed in some places. And there's been so much creativity in the forms of resistance. And that is also something that's going to live on. So there's already like so much rich resources of resistance that's there, which which can't be taken away, right? So those are ways in which we will have to sustain movements. Uh, when I say different forms, like for me personally, like the like we need to also evolve. We need to also change. Like we are against a very 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 powerful state, militarized state state with legal like weapons that they're using like you said there's so many arrests the same prevention of terrorism act which was used in the 70s 80s 90s is still being used so we also need to think of other ways of continuing the struggle without always going head on with this kind of you know machine and then getting crushed But that requires lots of conversations among different movements, different struggles in different parts of the country, which we haven't done enough. And I think that's something we need to slow down and start doing to imagine what we want, right? We know what we don't want, but we need to imagine and have conversations about what we want because we are not on the same page on that. So that's that's a a lot of work we need to do. Whatever happens in parliament, whatever, whoever the power gota comes back or not, like that may be the case. Even when people came in on on the 9th of April, and I remember this distinctly, 
my first day at the Aragale was on the 10th of April. And we, you know, there was like, when people talked about it, they said, okay, so this is golf is Aragale. I'm saying, you know, the epicenter of all of this. And people were like, oh, it'll die down in two weeks, in four weeks, in six weeks. And I think people never fully, uh, no, also nobody in power truly um, gauged how powerful this is going to be. They totally underestimated the power of the people. And I think Ranil right now is also underestimating the power of the people. He knows how powerful it is, which is why he keeps shutting down the voice of dissent. But I don't think he fully understands either that uh, the same voice, the, the same process that brought him into power will take him out. You and I in our lifetime have not ever seen this kind of mass mobilization, passion for social change, right? And I look at the young people who were there. I look at the young people who are part of our our little protest, right? They're 16 years old, 10 years old, uh, university students, you know? And I think you can't take that away from them, right? So already there's, there's no going back, you know? You have been a part of this, movement you have dared to dream whether that dream is going to come true or not uh, in our lifetime is not not the point the point is that you know you came together to imagine something different and that change has already happened the philosopher Nietzsche once said that when you look into the abyss the abyss looks back into you it means that when you confront something dark and frightening it leaves an impact on you that changes you forever. The same can be said of this island nation. In our quest through darkness and chaos, on this podcast, we've discovered scars and resilience, tragedy and hope. The story continues to evolve, shaped by Sri Lankan people's efforts, dialogues and the pursuit of justice. The future is uncertain, but the past is full of hard-won lessons for the people. So thank you to our listeners and guests for joining me on this journey as we explored Sri Lanka's relationship with conflict, money, democracy, and progress, and together sought answers to the question, what the hell happened to Sri Lanka? 